Welcome to the Critique Journal Club podcast for May 2016. I'm Neil Orford and this is where we go through the critical care literature that caught our eye in the last month. So let's start with Late Mortality After Sepsis, a propensity-matched cohort study published in the New England Journal of Medicine. We know there is a late mortality associated with severe sepsis. This has been described in observational studies. What is unknown is whether or not this is due to sepsis, critical illness, or is simply an expected effect of comorbidity. This prospective longitudinal survey of 37,000 adults aged over 50 in the US looked at over 65-year-olds in four cohorts based on ICD-9 codes. So they looked at four cohorts, and these were those over 65-year-olds admitted to hospital with sepsis, of which there were 960, those not currently in hospital, which was 777, those admitted to hospital with a non-sepsis infection, about 1,800, and those admitted to hospital with a sterile inflammatory condition, of which there are about 900. They used multiple logistic regression to estimate each participant's risk of having a hospital admission for sepsis in the next two years, and propensity matched with a model including multiple variables, and they matched sepsis cohort one for one with the other cohorts. What did they find? So there were no difference between the cohorts at baseline. The two-year mortality in the sepsis cohort was a whopping 56.5%. Compared to the not-in-hospital group, the sepsis group had an absolute increase in a late mortality of 22%, and that persisted for two years. Compared to the non-sepsis infection, the sepsis group had an increase in 10.4% of late mortality and that persisted for a year. For the sepsis survivors at a year, the risk of mortality of mortality for the subsequent year was the same as the non-sepsis infection. So that means in the first year after sepsis, the sepsis survivors have an increased mortality compared to non-sepsis infection and in the second year it's the same. Okay, compared to the sterile inflammatory condition, the sepsis group had a 16% increase in late mortality and that persisted for a year, uh, six months. In stratified analysis, the excess late mortality was constant across subgroups defined by source of sepsis, age, sex, comorbidity, residence, rating of health, but was higher in patients with more organ dysfunctions during sepsis. So what does this actually tell us? Well, firstly, it confirms the late mortality is high in patients with sepsis, and it is higher than patients with non-sepsis infections for a year, after which these two groups are the same. But it is higher than sterile inflammatory conditions and non-hospitalised patients. So, sepsis and infections are bad for you for one to two years. It appears this is not explained by pre-morbid comorbidities, as patients were matched for this. Unfortunately, this study does not tell us what the patients are dying of in this one to two years. 
so a mechanism and potentially reversible causes remain unknown. Still, it is food for thought and it gives us a direction for future studies. Let's stick with long-term outcomes and look at one-year outcomes in caregivers of critically ill patients. And this comes from the Margaret Herridge-inspired Recover Program and the Canadian Critical Care Trials Group and was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. This multi-centre, prospective, parallel cohort trial enrolled 280 caregivers of patients who had received greater than seven days of mechanical ventilation from a Toronto ICU over seven years and collected hospital and self-administered questionnaires out to 12 months that asked about caregiver and patient characteristics, caregiver depressive symptoms, psychological well-being, health-related quality of life, sense of control over life, and effective providing care on other activities. They report that caregivers were on average 53 years of age, were predominantly women and were caring for a spouse. Depressive symptoms are prevalent 67% initially and they decreased over time 43% in one year. Variables associated with worse mental health outcomes in caregivers were younger age, greater effect of patient care on other activities, less social support, less sense of control over life, and less personal growth. No patient variables were consistently associated with caregiver outcomes over time. So overall this tells us that caregiving is associated with depressive symptoms in the year after prolonged critical illness, that this is not associated with patient factors, but there are caregiver risk factors. The suggestion is that support for these high-risk carers is needed. One more paper that looks at long-term or persistent critical illness was published in The Lancet. The timing of onset and burden of persistent critical illness in Australia and New Zealand a retrospective population-based observational study. So the question, is there a moment when the acute illness feature no longer predicts outcome more than pre-illness features? If so, is this the onset of persistent critical illness? That is, where your outcome is decided more by your long-term issues than your acute issues. This retrospective observational study conducted from Australia and New Zealand databases describes the outcomes of over a million adult patients. They describe a change from prediction of outcome based on admission diagnosis and physiological derangements to a transition of prediction from antecedent patient characteristics at day 10 post-ICU. They go on to tell us that the transition occurred between day 7 and 22 in diagnosis-based subgroups and day 6 to 15 in risk-of-death-based subgroups. Persistent critical illness accounted for 5% of admissions but 33% of ICU bed days. And a quarter of persistent critical illness patients died and about half only were discharged home. So overall, this fairly unique study tells us that persistent critical illness can be empirically measured. It starts at about day 10, and although only a minority of admissions develop persistent critical illness, they consume a lot of our resources and do badly in that they 
die or don't go home. Let's move on to something different. Perioperative resuvastatin and cardiac surgery published in the New England Journal of Medicine. The exploration of the effects of statins on acute illness continues. This time the question is, does the anti-inflammatory and antioxidative effect of statins reduce perioperative complications following cardiac surgery? The rationale is that there is some evidence for anti-inflammatory effects after cardiac surgery with statins and that patients often have them recommenced immediately post-operatively as part of their routine cardiac therapy. This multi-center RCT, the STIX Statin Therapy and Cardiac Surgery Trial, conducted in China and England, enrolled adults having elective CAGs or AVR if they are in sinus rhythm and not on anti-arrhythmics other than beta blockers. They were assigned to receive statin 20 milligrams daily for 8 days pre-op and 5 days post-op versus placebo. Patients taking statins had them stopped and were then randomised. Sample size, they estimated 500 per group based on 80% power to detect a relative difference of 25% in AF from a baseline of 35% and a 15% area under the curve for troponin. As recruitment continued, the rate of AF was found to be 20% and so the sample size was increased to 1,900 total. Baseline data was similar between groups. After surgery, 92% received beta blockers, 60% non-steroidals or dexamethasone. The primary outcome were co-primary outcomes and there was no change. So post-operative AF, resuvastatin 21%, placebo 20%, odds ratio 1.04, p-value 0.72. No difference in any pre-specified subgroup either, including those taking statins before randomization had them stopped. Perioperative AMI was the second co-primary outcome and that was area under the curve troponin and there was no difference, 1%. Secondary outcomes of interest, acute kidney injury was more common in the statin group. So overall, this large study reports that perioperative resuvastatin does not change the incidence of AF or perioperative AMI and may increase acute kidney injury following cardiac surgery. It seems there is no real benefit in using statins to prevent perioperative complications. So let's stick with the New England Journal of Medicine. What is the best time to initiate renal replacement therapy in critically ill patients with acute kidney injury but no directly life-threatening indication to start? So this is the Akiki study group, Initiation Strategies for Renal Replacement Therapy in the ICU. This prospective multi-center trial randomized 620 ventilated catecholamine requiring patients with severe acute kidney injury and no life-threatening renal failure indication to immediate renal replacement therapy versus delayed renal replacement therapy. The triggers for renal replacement therapy initiation in the delayed groups were severe hyperkalemia, metabolic acidosis, pulmonary edema, urea greater than 112 milligrams per deciliter or oliguria for more than 72 hours. They report at baseline the patients were well matched and renal replacement therapy was commenced at a median of 4.3 hours after stage 3 acute kidney injury. 
Renal replacement therapy was commenced at a median of 57 hours in the delayed group, so a big difference. And 50% of the delayed group didn't actually need renal replacement therapy. Only 30% of patients received continuous renal replacement therapy only. The rest received either intermittent alone or a mix of the both. The primary outcome, day 60 survival, was not different. 48.5% in the early group, 49.7% in the delay group, P.79. Clabsy was higher in the early group. Diuresis occurred earlier in the delayed group and the number of days free of renal replacement therapy increased in the delayed group. And finally, blood loss from the non-digestive tract causes was higher in the delayed group. There was no difference in ventilator-free days, ICU and hospital length of stay, and renal replacement therapy dependence. So this study adds important information to this field of interest. As previous studies describing the timing of renal replacement therapy have either been observational or looked at timing in patients that received renal replacement therapy anyway, thereby removing the cohort that don't end up requiring renal replacement therapy. It is interesting that renal recovery appeared to occur sooner in the delayed group and that overall length of stay or mortality outcomes were not different. The obvious generalizability issue is that this was predominantly an intermittent, not a continuous renal replacement therapy study, raising the possibility that intermittent hemodialysis may have resulted in cardiovascular changes that impaired renal recovery. So it seems we still need a continuous renal replacement therapy timing study. Well, it looks like we might be in luck because in JAMA this month we have effects of early versus delayed initiation of renal replacement therapy on mortality in critically ill patients with acute kidney injury. And this is a continuous renal replacement therapy timing study. So how is this study different from Akiki and what, does, what did it add? Well firstly it's single centre and enrolled 231 patients compared to Akiki which enrolled over 600 so not as externally valid. They looked at adult patients that needed all of stage 2 acute kidney injury, an NGAL of a greater than 150 nanograms per mil, and severe sepsis or vasopressors or catecholamines or fluid load or a SOFA score greater than or equal to 2. So they needed those three things to be included in the study. The treatment was everyone got continuous renal replacement therapy. Early was defined as within 8 hours, whereas delayed was initiated within 12 hours of progression from stage 2 to stage 3 acute kidney injury. So slightly different criteria. In practice, the timing of continuous renal replacement therapy post-enrollment was 6 hours in the early group, 25 and a half hours in, in the delayed group. So a reduction in the time to delayed renal replacement therapy compared to the Akiki trial, which was 2 and a half days. 100% um, of the early group received continuous renal replacement therapy compared to 90% of the delayed group. Again, that's a difference. In Akiki, only half got it, and maybe that's because it was given later. 
The primary outcome, mortality at 90 days, was 39.3% in the early versus 54.7% in delayed hazard ratio of 0.66, 95% confidence intervals of 0.45 to 0.97, p-value of 0.03. So that's a significant difference in mortality, and that's different to the Akiki trial. The early group recovered renal function more quickly, 9 days versus 25 days, had shorter hospital stay, 51 versus 82 days, pretty long, but no difference in requirement for renal replacement therapy after day 90. So very different outcomes from the two studies, and the size of effects witnessed in this study seemed difficult to explain. The two studies had fairly similar entry criteria. As we said, it was a little earlier in this study. Mortality rates were pretty similar, although there were different time points for mortality, 90 versus 60 days. The time to delayed renal replacement therapy was different, 25.5 hours versus 57 hours. The modes were different, continuous versus predominantly intermittent. And the proportion that didn't receive renal replacement therapy in the delayed group were different, 9 versus 50%. So did this study show a treatment benefit because they used continuous renal replacement therapy, that is avoiding the cardiovascular effects of intermittent, because they gave delayed treatment 30 hours earlier, or because more patients actually received the delayed treatment? Or is it simply that this is a single center study and that these results wouldn't be replicated in a larger trial. When considered together, these two articles reaffirm the need for a large multi-center RCT of early versus delayed continuous renal replacement therapy in patients with acute kidney injury who don't have an immediate indication or a life-threatening indication for renal replacement therapy. Let's leave kidneys and move to lungs. In JAMA, we have effective non-invasive ventilation delivered by helmet versus face mask on the rate of endotracheal intubation in patients with ARDS, a randomized clinical trial. Does NIV with a helmet offer a prevention to endotracheal intubation in ARDS compared to face mask non-invasive ventilation? This single-center RCT randomized 83 patients with ARDS who had received at least 8 hours of NIV via a face mask to ongoing face mask therapy with Philips Respironix machines or a helmet, the C-long helmet with an ICU ventilator in PSV or CPAP mode. Both had their therapies titrated up and down by a protocol with defined PEEP, FiO2 and inspiratory pressure and intubation was decided on predetermined criteria. They report the primary outcome, which was endotracheal intubation, was 61.5% in the face mask group versus 18% in the helmet group. That's an absolute difference of minus 43%. 95% confidence intervals are minus 62 to minus 24%, p-value of less than 0 0.001. Secondary outcomes that favoured the helmet included VFDs, 28 versus 12 days, 90-day mortality, 34 versus 56 day percent. It all looks good. These results seem too good to be true. So what is the explanation? The groups were similar at baseline and they had similar post-randomization duration of NIV with higher PEEP in the helmet group, median of 8 versus 5, due to tolerance and air leak issues. 
of interest upon randomization, the transition from pre-enrollment face mask NIV to study face mask NIV resulted in no change in respiratory rate, while the transition from face mask to helmet was associated with a decrease in respiratory rate from 28 to 24. So is it simply that helmets are better tolerated, deliver pressure, or in this case the PEEP, more effectively, and as a result lead to a reduction in respiratory rate and better outcomes? I guess it's plausible, but certainly this needs to be confirmed in larger multi-centre studies before we start sticking helmets on everyone. Sticking with the lungs, we have another study in JAMA, the LIPS-A randomised clinical trial. Effective aspirin on development of ARDS in at-risk patients presenting to the ED. With the median time from hospital admission to ARDS two days, is there a window of opportunity to intervene, at least in hospital? For instance, could high-risk patients be given aspirin during this period in the hope that the antiplatelet effect will attenuate lung injury. This multi-centre randomised controlled trial enrolled 390 patients within 12 hours of presentation to the ED with a LIPS score greater than 4 to aspirin, 325 milligrams oral load, then 81 milligrams a day up to 7 days, versus placebo. Patients already receiving antiplatelet therapy were excluded. And what was the result? Almost 40% of the 7,500 patients screened were excluded due to current antiplatelet therapy. Well, that's not surprising. The groups were similar at baseline with a median time to randomization of 7.3 hours. The primary outcome, development of ARDS by day 7, was not altered. 10.3% in aspirin versus 8.7% in placebo, odds ratio of 1.24. There are no benefits for secondary outcomes, including length of stay, need for mechanical ventilation, mortality, and the suggestion of higher interleukin-2 in the aspirin group. So overall, this study shows aspirin was safe, but not effective at reducing the incidence of ARDS in high-risk patients in the ED. So it's possible the dose and the timing could be changed. Um, indeed, it's possible you could give it pre-hospital. But the authors conclude the results do not meet the pre-specified criteria for a larger Phase 3 trial. Kind of sticking with lungs, let's look at a randomised trial of an intensive physical therapy program for patients with acute respiratory failure, published in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Do early physical therapy interventions improve long-term outcomes after critical illness? Now, the interest in this area is growing as our horizons have firmly shifted from surviving ICU to trying to live well after ICU. However, the efficacy, dose, timing, duration, risks and benefits of early physical therapy are not well elucidated. This multi-centre prospective trial conducted in Denver randomised 120 patients who required at least four days of mechanical ventilation to intensive PT versus standard care and assessed physical function at one, three and six months. Intensive PT was conducted for up to 28 days after randomization or until the patient successfully completed all stages of the program. 
While an inpatient, PT was delivered seven days per week by a licensed physical therapist. After hospital discharge to a home environment, the protocol was continued in the home or on an outpatient basis three days a week until the subject completed 28 days of therapy or was able to successfully complete all stages of the program. PT sessions were planned for 30 minutes while the patient was in the ICU and for up to 60 minutes while the patient was on a regular hospital floor in an outpatient setting or at home. The components of the PT program consisted of five elements delivered in a graduated manner. One, techniques for proper breathing during exercise. Two, progressive range of motion. Three, therapeutic exercises emphasizing muscle strengthening. Four, exercises designed to improve core mobility and strength. And five, functional mobility retraining, including bed mobility, transfers, gait and balance. Standard PT received inpatient range of motion exercises, positioning and functional mobility retraining three days per week by a licensed PT. Once participants were able, they were assisted in daily activities such as transfers to bedside or chair and ambulation in their room. Similarly to the patients in the intensive PT arm, standard, of care, standard care patients received their intervention for up to a total of 28 days. However, at hospital discharge to home, these patients received only information on the importance of daily exercise and were encouraged to initiate their own exercise program. No formal outpatient therapy program was delivered to the patients receiving standard care. They report of the 763 patients screened, 218 were ineligible due to cognitive impairment, 189 pre-existing physical impairment and 128 cardiorespiratory risk. Therefore, the 120 enrolled were a physically well independent living cohort. The median days from MV initiation to first PT was 8 days. Patients in the intensive PT received 12 and a half sessions on about 80% of days for an average of 40 minutes compared to six sessions on 80% of days for an average of 22 minutes in the standard group. The intensive PT patients received more intense therapy, so they stood at 73% of treatments versus 15% for standard. There was no difference in sedation, analgesia, NMBs, mortality, 28-day ICU free days or discharge home. In terms of the primary outcome, physical functional performance, there was no difference at one, three and six months. It is important to note that only 39 participants had this assessed. There was a big loss to follow-up and that's a problem in these long-term follow-up studies. So what does this tell us? Intensive PT can be delivered to a select cohort of independent, cognitively intact patients. Although this population have considerable physical disability at six months, the early intensive PT program did not improve outcomes. Finally, it is difficult to do this research with participation at 12 months a significant problem. It's possible that earlier PT, either day two, not day eight, could attenuate muscle loss that has occurred by day eight. Does the dose and the intensity of later PT need to be explored further? Are there risks that we don't know of? And what will it take for us to believe this is either of no benefit or some benefit? I suspect a large, convincing RCT. Okay, only two more to go. In JAMA, let's look at a paediatric study, effect of early prophylactic high-dose 
recombinant human EPO in very preterm infants on neurodevelopmental outcomes at two years, an RCT. Critical care physicians have been interested in the neuroprotective effects of EPO for some time, with the recent negative adult EPO TBI trial refuting its role. So what about its role in encephalopathy of prematurity? The rationale is that EPO receptor expression in neuronal and glial cells and animal evidence of neuroprotection with the usual antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, anti-apoptotic, etc. pathways proposed. In addition, retrospective data shows EPO benefit in neurodevelopment of preterm infants when used for anemia. Finally, an association has been reported between early high-dose recombinant EPO, enough to cross the blood-brain barrier, and a reduced incidence of white and grey matter injuries assessed by cerebral MRI in a subgroup of very preterm infants. So, this Phase 3 RCT reports the results of early high-dose recombinant EPO on neurodevelopmental outcomes at two years in 448 very preterm infants born 26 weeks to 32 weeks. They received EPO 3,000 units per kilo versus placebo. The study had to be temporarily suspended after a child died of intracerebral hemorrhage and the family lodged for compensation. Disclosure of allocation revealed the child received EPO and an independent committee ruled it was not related and the study resumed. The primary outcome was cognitive development assessed with the MDI. Higher values indicate better function and they did it at two years corrected age. The minimal clinically important difference between groups was considered to be five points. The result was mean MDI was not statistically significantly different between the EPO group 93.5 is what it was and the placebo group 94.5 and they tell us that the norm is 100. Secondary outcomes were motor development assessed with the psychomotor development index, cerebral palsy, hearing or visual impairment and anthropometric growth parameters. No differences were found between groups in these secondary outcomes. So in conclusion the use of high dose early recombinant human EPO compared to placebo led to no difference in neurological development at two years in very preterm infants. The authors raised the issue that cognitive assessment at school age may be a better primary outcome as children differentiate more as you go on, but still it's a negative study. So the last paper for May 2016 is prevalence of factors related to discordance about prognosis between physicians and surrogate decision makers of critically ill patients in JAMA. Families of unconscious intensive care patients are under immense emotional stress and are being asked to participate in decisions about invasive organ support while processing their own hope, their need to provide strength and support, guilt about giving up. In this setting, there is evidence they end up with an overly optimistic expectation about prognosis. Clinicians believe this is a major issue in end-of-life care. So why do clinicians and surrogates have different views about end-of-life care? This mixed quantitative and qualitative study was conducted at four US ICUs 
in San Francisco Medical Center using surveys and interviews of families and clinicians of 174 adult patients lacking decision-making capacity on day 5 of ICU with Apache greater than 25 and a 40% predicted risk of death. What did they find? Well, in terms of physician surrogate discordance, clinicians and surrogates were asked to estimate survival based on a probability of 0 to 100%. Surrogates were also asked to guess the clinician estimate. Discordance, which was defined as greater than 20% disagreement, occurred in 53% of cases, with 43% of surrogates more optimistic and 10% more pessimistic. Physicians were more accurate at prognostication. In interviews, three themes emerged to explain surrogate optimism. First, it would improve the patient's outcome and protect them from distress. Second, Surrogates believe patients have strengths the physicians don't recognise. And third, surrogates have got their optimism grounded in religious beliefs. Two themes emerged for surrogate pessimism. A belief that the physician was inherently optimistic. Uh, a lack of physician knowledge about the patient's unique weakness and disability, so the opposite of what we saw in optimism. What can we take from this? Well, firstly, there is significant discordance between surrogates and clinicians. Even after five days of ICU, when you would sort of expect the conversations to have occurred and for uh, hopes and expectations to be aligning more. And this is a unit that does a lot of communication. Of equal interest are the reasons for optimism and pessimism. And these, combined with the size of the discordance perhaps give us some tools when we're talking to surrogates that we're able to identify areas that we can improve our communication food for thought well that's it for the critique journal club for may 2016 come to the website and have a look otherwise we'll see you next month